Gabe, and this is Our American Stories. And every once in a while, we like to dig into the world of entertainment. And we love this days in history, and sometimes we merge the two. History isn't just George Washington and men in wigs. It's women in wigs in the entertainment business. And Lucille Ball passed away this day in history in 1989. She was born in August 6, 1911 in Jamestown, New York, to Henry Durrell Ball and his wife, Desiree. And this improbable start led to one of the iconic careers in American entertainment history, a trailblazer, a first of firsts, influenced so many other performers, one of whom we'll cover in this hour too, Carol Burnett. Lucille Ball, no doubt, had a gigantic influence. The two actually performed quite a bit together as their careers arced and overlapped. Lucille Ball starting to ebb as Cal Burnett's was starting to rise. And Cal Burnett, well, that was one of the great shows in the history of television. You can put on any of them. I dare you, I defy you to not laugh at this remarkable ensemble comedy. And it's not comedy like anyone's ever seen before or after, frankly. It was unique. But on to Lucille Ball. The oldest of the couple's two children, Lucille and her little brother had a hard childhood, shaped by tragedy and a lack of money. By the way, we hear this over and over again with comedians' lives. They're tough lives. Ball's father died in February 1915 when he was struck with typhoid fever. For Ball, just three years old at the time, this would serve as the young girl's first real significant memory. Ouch. By the age of 11, Lucille enrolled in drama school. And by 1927, she had found work as a model. By the way, take a look at pictures of the young Lucille Ball. And it is very hard for beautiful women to also be funny. It's very hard for beautiful men to also be funny. Think of the great comics who were beautiful, male or female. Keep thinking. And while you keep thinking, we'll tell you the story. You're going to come up with nobody. And by the way, Lucille Ball made herself look unbeautiful. She knew that the beauty had to be cut. So she shaped her hair in ways that made her look ordinary. She didn't make herself up. She dressed dowdy. She had a stunning figure. You'd never know it. All for the laughs. All for the laughs. In the early 1930s, she moved to Hollywood and found a role on a musical comedy. And in 1937, she had a sizable part in the film Stage Door. And that was with Catherine Hepburn and Ginger Rogers. And by the way, she steals every scene. Every scene. Ball would appear in 72 movies during her career. One of her earliest, a movie called Dance Girl Dance from 1940, introduced her to a handsome Cuban band leader named Desi Arnaz. I am just a sweet young thing of 22. (laughs) Or so. I never think to smoke or drink. My life is one long... What? No. (laughs) I finished at Miss Sniffing School, a model debutante. I know each fork and spoon and rule. I don't say can't, but can't. My etiquette is ooh, may we. I pour a proper pot of tea. And even when I need a nip, I never 
Never, never slip. Well, almost never. <laughs> oh, cut it out, fellas. And there it is, right there. Everything. The wit, the timing, the sass. Spunky. Sexy. Playing with her sexuality. And comfortable with men. Knowing exactly where to stop the accent. Knowing exactly when to stop. And when to shut up. And that's the key to comedy. Silence. Ball dyed her hair red in 1942. At the request of MGM. She was looking at a stagnant movie career and unable to break into a starring role. As a result, Arnez pushed his wife to try broadcasting, and it wasn't long before Ball landed a lead part in the radio comedy My Favorite Husband. This clip from an episode titled Vacation Time originally aired April 29, 1949. As we look in on the Coopers today, it is a cold, rainy afternoon, and Liz is in her bedroom. Hey, wait a minute, that's funny. It's raining outside, but Liz is standing in front of the mirror wearing a backless, strapless sundress. Katie, come here a minute, will you? Yes, Mrs. Cooper, what is this? How do you like my new sundress? Oh, where is it? I'm wearing it. <laughs> is that all there is to it? Doesn't something go over that? No, this is that latest style. Doesn't it look like I've done poured into it? It certainly does. I only hope you don't spill over. <laughs> Katie, do you think I'll make an impression in this? Impression? You'll make a dent. <laughs> How does it stay up without any strap? It's held up by faith, hope, and don't exhale any more than you have to. <laughs> My goodness, look at all these play clothes on the bed. Did you buy all these this morning? Yes, I just couldn't resist them, Katie. Isn't it awful? But I want to look good for George. After all, he's going to see a lot of me this summer. So is everybody else. <laughs> You're just old-fashioned, Katie. If you think that sundress is daring, look at my new French bathing suit. It's there on the bed. I don't see it. Here's your slacks, pedal pushers, your beach robe, and this little blue handkerchief. Oh. Well, that's funny. Oh, here it is. No wonder you couldn't see the bathing suit. It was under the handkerchief. And there you had it. My favorite husband caught the attention of CBS executives who wanted her to recreate something like it on the small screen. And by the way, it was just the beginning of television. Good luck and serendipity have so much to do in life. But she didn't quit when she was having a problem. She tried something new. Ball, though, insisted it include her real-life husband, something the network wasn't interested in at all. So Ball walked away, and with Desi, they put together an I Love Lucy-like vaudeville act and took it on the road. Success soon greeted the pair, so too did a contract from CBS. More on this day in history, Lucille Ball passed away. We'll be back. This is Lee Habib, and it's This Day in History Time, brought to you, as always, by Hillsdale College 
And we're celebrating the life of Lucille Ball. And I Love Lucy made its debut. And to the television viewing audience across the country, it was immediately apparent that this was a sitcom like no other. Ball and Arnez knew exactly what they wanted from the network. Their demands included the opportunity to create their new program in Hollywood rather than New York, where most TV was still being shot. But the biggest hurdle centered on the couple's preference to shoot on film rather than a less expensive format. When CBS told them it would cost too much, Ball and Arnez agreed to a pay cut. Boy, that's putting your money where your mouth is, huh? In return, they would retain full ownership rights to the program and run it under their newly formed production company, Desilu Productions. Oh, my goodness. I Love Lucy touched on many themes, including pregnancy. When Lucy gave birth to little Ricky on January 19, 1953, the same day the real-life Lucy delivered her son, Desi Jr., in this scene, Lucy is having a pregnancy craving. What took you so long? What do you mean, what took me so long? I had to go all over town. <laughs> There's only one store in New York City that makes a papaya juice milkshake. <laughs> oh, thank you. Mmm. Oh. Did you get the dill pickle? <laughs> you don't stop having these silly cravings at four o'clock in the morning, I'm going to freeze to death. Here. This pistachio? Yeah, that's pistachio. Here's your spoon. Which is that? Hot fudge. Pour it on top. <laughs> now pour that right on top of this. But honey, these are sardines. <laughs> And you don't have to see it to see it. Because she was such a great comedian. And by the way, comedian. We were talking about this groundbreaking woman because take away the woman part of it. She was a feminist before there were feminists. But she was just doing it. And she was better than the guys. And she made it on her own terms. And that was just what was so stunning about Paul. In classic episode of I Love Lucy, the vitamin of Vega Min was a fictitious health tonic in the episode Lucy Does a TV Commercial. As she auditions for the role in this commercial, she continually sips from the elixir that contains 23% alcohol. By the end of the sketch, Lucy is sloshed. Hello, friends. I'm your Vitamina Benjamin girl. Are you tired, run down, listless? Do you poop out at parties? Are you unpopular? The answer to all your problems is in this little bottle. Vitamina Benjamin. Yes, Vitamina Benjamin contains vitamins, meat, vegetables, and minerals. Yes, with Vitamina Benjamin, you can spoon your way to health. All you do is take a big tablespoonful after every meal. <laughs> it's so tasty, too. It tastes just like candy. Well, I'm your Vitamina Benjamin, girl. Are you tired of running down a listless? Do you pop out a party? As the title of the show indicated, Lucy was the star, and listen to what she just did. 
fun, silly, made herself look ridiculous, at ease with humiliating herself for a laugh. While she could at times downplay her hard work, she was a perfectionist. Contrary to perception, rarely was anything ad-libbed. It was routine for the actress to spend hours rehearsing her antics and facial expressions, and her groundbreaking work in comedy paved the way for Mary Tyler Moore, Penny Marshall, Carol Burnett, and Sybil Shepard. Here, Carol Burnett talks about her friend Lucille Ball being a perfectionist who demanded the best from her staff. Well, she never censored herself from here to here. Whatever she said, she was thinking, and it came out. And sometimes you'd think, whew, she's a little, like, she'll say, what's that light up there for? What are you doing with the light? Like that, to the lighting guy, you know. You say, Lucy, I'm doing this such and such. She said, okay, let me see what you, great, great. So she was never picking on anybody. She just was the way she was. And uh, they would lay their lives down for her. Because when she said, that's great, she meant it. When she said, that stinks, she meant it. But it was never personal. During its six-year run, I Love Lucy's success was unrivaled. Four of its seasons, the sitcom was number one in the country. In 1953, the program captured an unheard of 63.7 audience share, which included a 71.1 rating for the episode that featured Little, Little Ricky's birth, a turnout that surpassed the television audience for President Eisenhower's inauguration ceremonies. That's crazy. While the show ended in 1957, Desilu Productions continued on, producing more television hits like Our Miss Brooks, Make Room for Daddy, The Dick Van Dyke Show, The Untouchables, Star Trek, and Mission Impossible. Not bad. In 1960, Ball and Arnez divorced. Two years later, Ball bought out her former husband and took over Desilu Productions, making her the first woman to run a major television production studio. Wow. She eventually sold the company to Gulf and Western in 1967 for $17 million. Here's Lucille on the Johnny Carson Show back in 1969. Her and Johnny talk about how much the television world had changed up to that point. You're not getting tired of doing television, are you? Didn't you no. get to the point once where you were going to quit and says, I'm... No, I never got to a point where I was going to quit. I've been on 18 years. No, not 18 years. Yes, 18 years. That's incredible. Of course, television has changed quite a bit since I started. It has. I see the reruns occasionally, and the skirts and the styles. That's the only... The comedy is still great. When I first started in television, I appeared on our show in, um, uh, shall I say, a slightly pregnant condition. That's right. Which we were asked to refer to as expecting, because some of the viewers had complained. Imagine complaining about that. Nowadays, you not only see people, women pregnant, but how they got that way. <laughs> it's true. You're, you're, not, you're right. That is, that is true. More acting work followed, including a pair of sitcoms, The Lucy Show, 62 to 68, and Here's Lucy, 68 to 73. Both achieved a modest level of success, but neither captured the magic that had defined her earlier program with Arnez. In 1974, Lucille told Barbara Walters, what she thought of Desi. He had his own band, and he was in a play in New York, and he was a kid. When you were married. But when we were then, first married. At the success. Then we build up right. a lot of things. Right. But, but then even when you while they were building, they would not believe that he was doing the building. Yeah. 
and he was doing the successful building of a very well-run empire. I was doing the acting and having the children. I, was, I had no part of it. I took that on much later. I married a loser before. I, he, he could win, win, high, high, high stakes. He could work very hard. He was brilliant. But he had to lose. When the Kennedy Center honored Lucille Ball in 1986, Desi Arnaz had just died five days earlier following a long bout with cancer. He wrote a touching statement for this event, which is read here by Robert Stack. Lucy struggled to keep her composure while the letter was read. She was sitting next to Ronald and Nancy Reagan at the time. I love Lucy at just one mission, to make people laugh. Lucy gave it a rare quality. She can perform the wildest, even the messiest physical comedy without losing her feminine appeal. The New York Times asked me to divide the credit for its success between the writers, the directors, and the cast. I told them, give Lucy 90% of the credit and divide the other 10% among the rest of us. Desi concluded, Lucy was the show. Viv and Fred and I were just props. Damn good props, but props nevertheless. P.S. I love Lucy was never just the title. And Lucille, on April 26, 1989, died. Carol Burnett remembers the first time she met her hero. First time I met Lucy was uh, when I was in an off-Broadway show called Once Upon a Mattress, and this was on the second night after we opened. I can still remember the date. It was May 12th, 1959. I thought I had recovered from my opening night nerves, but I really became a total wreck when the word came backstage that Lucille Ball was in the audience. Well, somehow I managed to cover my jitters, and I fooled everybody, except Lucy. After the show, she came backstage, and she sat with me for nearly an hour, and by the time she left, I was completely calmed down. This is Lee Habib, and on the day Lucille Ball died, Cal Burnett was actually born on the same day. When we come back, Cal Burnett's life, this day in history. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and you're listening to the theme music to The Carol Burnett Show. And on the day that Lucille Ball died, which is today, April 26th, Carol Burnett was born quite a number of years later, but same day. What a remarkable thing. Perhaps the two greatest comedians of their era, and I believe just the two best comedians. And let's just say they would have been honored to be called comedians and not just comedians. In fact, I think they would have felt slighted if you only called them comedians. Because they rose, both of them rose above their women's status. They were both the leads. Men played the subordinate parts. With Carol Burnett, several brilliant men played the subordinate part. Some of the best comic actors in history couldn't hold a candle to her. None of those guys could have done their own show. No chance. And by the way, what studs Harvey Corman, particularly, 
was in subordinating their talents to a woman at a time when nobody did. But they knew greatness was happening, and I don't think there was a better show in history than The Carol Burnett Show. That's just my humble opinion. She was born this day in history in 1933, one of the most popular comedians on television. She was born in San Antonio, Texas, to Joseph and Ina Burnett. After her parents divorced in the late 1930s, Carol moved in with her grandmother to a small apartment in Hollywood, California. And again, folks, it's a theme you'll hear over and over and over. Pain. Lots of it. And comedians running to comedy as a refuge from dysfunctional childhoods, very often painful memories. Here's Carol talking about those early years living with her grandmother, whom she calls a hypochondriacal Christian scientist, whatever that is, who liked to seduce, by the way, she liked to seduce young men. We had a one room and with a Murphy pull-down bed, which never went back up into the wall because my grandmother was always lying down on it and saying, I don't know if I can live another day. <laughs> you know, and she was always feeling her pulse. But what was funny was she, she, she was a Christian scientist. <laughs> and, and, you know, she, but she was a hypochondriacal Christian scientist. So she'd say, okay, now, as they say in Christian science, know the truth for me, which means, you know, there's, you're not going to be ill and everything's going to be fine. And so I'd be a little girl and I'd be doing that, you know. And then she'd say, go get me an aspirin. <laughs> you know, so it was like, so I got mixed messages and stuff. Yeah. And, uh, but then I found out years later when I was writing a, an autobiography or a memoir, I should say, uh, I found out, I'd known that she'd been married three times. That I knew. And then I found out that she'd been married six times. She had actually um, seduced her second husband, who was, uh, uh, she had taught him piano lessons. And uh, she, uh, uh, he was quite a bit younger. And she, and he uh, eloped to Texas from Arkansas. And uh, his mother came and got him. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. We were laughing, but my goodness. What a thing to discover. Ouch. You didn't even know your mom. You didn't even know how many husbands she had. That's painful. After studying theater arts and English at the University of California at Los Angeles, as an aspiring playwright, Burnett left school early and made her way to New York City with her boyfriend in hopes of breaking into acting. She made her first TV appearance in the early 1950s with a short stint on a children's TV program. Soon after... She began co-starring with Buddy Hackett on the sitcom Stanley, and that's 1956 to 7. And in 59, Burnett became a regular on the Gary Moore show. Over the years, she was also featured on occasional CBS specials. Already a popular performer, she got her own comedy variety show, The Carol Burnett Show, in 1967. In addition to Burnett, the cast consisted of Vicki Lawrence, Harvey Corman, Lyle Wagoner, Tim Conway, and Dick Van Dyke. In a recent interview, Carol told Seth Meyers how she got the Carol Burnett show on the air after she was told that variety shows were a man's game. I had a peculiar contract with uh, CBS. It was a 10-year contract. And uh, within the first five years, there was a clause, a wonderful clause, that said that if I wanted to do a one-hour variety show, within the first five years... 
they would have to put it on, wow. whether they wanted to or not. That's and, a good, you had a good lawyer. I sure did. Yeah. And, and, but you know, I, I never thought I would want to do it and, and until about the last week of the fifth year. Uh-huh. We just bought a house in California. We put a down payment on it, and I had not been employed that much. Got it. Yeah, and I said, you know what? Maybe we'd better uh, push that button, <laughs> you know? And so I called uh, CBS back here in New York, one of the vice presidents, and I said, you know, <clears throat> I, I, oh, and it was like between Christmas and New Year's, you know, so. Oh, it's a very small last, window. Last five days. And he, I said, I want to push that button, and he went, huh? <laughs> he had totally, they'd totally forgotten about it. Oh, wow. And they uh, got a bunch of lawyers out of uh, Christmas parties that night. And, <laughs> and he called me back the next day and he said, well, yeah, Carol, I see that. But, you know, variety, comedy variety, it's not for gals. It's a man's game. Oh, no. Oh, oh no. <laughs> yeah. He said, you know, it's Sid Caesar, it's Jackie Gleason, now it's Dean Martin. He said, you know, uh, yeah, we've got this great sitcom we'd love you to do called Here's Agnes. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I bet he didn't say it oh, like that. No, that's the way, that's the way it's I called Here's it. Agnes. <laughs> no, you can just see it. Yeah. And I said, but I don't want to be Agnes. I don't want to be the same person week after week. Mm -hmm. I, I'm a sketch comedian. I want to be different characters. I want music, guest stars, a rep company, you know, all kinds of stuff. And they had to put us on the air. If I hadn't had that clause in the contract, I wouldn't be here tonight. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, no, because Here's Agnes would have been the biggest show. <laughs> I would have just said, now the star of the longest-running sitcom, Here's Agnes. Hi there. <laughs> No, but that's not actually true because Carol Burnett wouldn't have been good in that. This is the thing. Seth's wrong. Seth and Carol talk about the intense production schedule of that Carol Burnett show. The most episodes I ever did in a season of SNL, which had a far bigger cast yes. than the Carol Burnett show, I'm sure more writers, was 22. You did 30 in your first year. Yes. And then down to 20, only 20, like 28. 28, and then I think around the fifth, sixth year, we, we, then we settled in for 26. I can't even imagine. And how much time, I mean, obviously it doesn't give you more than a week to prepare for each episode, right. I'm assuming. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, that's unreal to me. I can't But we believe. would do two shows on Fridays. Okay. Like, uh, the same, and uh, tape in front of an audience. And, and then we uh, five o'clock, and then we do an eight o'clock show in front of a different audience, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, we would tape about an hour and fifteen minutes with all the music, the sketches, the costume changes, all of that. In about two hours, we'd be out of there in time to go to dinner. Amazing, amazing. And when we come back, we're going to dig into some of the best scenes from the Carol Burnett show, more about her life, and what a thing. By the way, we learned this about Dolly Parton, too. Her ability to negotiate for herself. We did an hour on her. You can go to ouramericannetwork.org. That toughness to just say, no, here's how my career is going to go. I'm leaving this show. I'm keeping my song, I Will Always Love You. We learned that Elvis Presley wanted it, and he wanted half the publishing. And she said no at a time when she desperately needed the money, and she needed the hit. And my goodness, Elvis would have made it a hit. But many, many years later, Whitney Houston made it a gigantic hit and made Dolly Port Parton a small fortune. And so these are remarkable women. They're not, just, they're not just talented. They're groundbreakers. They're pioneers. And they're business people. They're fierce. 
business people, and all to keep their independence, all to protect their art. That's what it was really about. It wasn't about business. It was, I will not let somebody else control who I am on the air. Period. More on this remarkable life story. Carol Burnett, born on this day in history. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, the life of Carol Burnett. We just did the life of Lucille Ball, born and died, both of them on the same day. Ball died on this day in history, and Carol Burnett was born. And let's take you to the beginning of the very first Carol Burnett show, which originally aired on September 11th, 1967. She breaks the fourth wall. She does something no one else had ever done before in television. She actually takes a few questions from the audience which he turned into a stand-up routine. CBS presents this program in color. Welcome to our, our first show that we're doing. I'm real excited and very, very happy that you're all with us tonight. Looks like we got a nice full group. Uh, could you bump up the lights so I could see? Oh! Gorgeous. <laughs> While we're uh, getting ready back there b- b- before the opening number, I just uh, thought it'd be nice to come out and chat and get to know you and you get to know me and everything before we start. So if you have any questions at all you'd like to ask, don't hesitate to uh, ask. Anything at all you want, to, you want to know about the show or who's on or uh, what? Yes, sir. Who's on? Oh, you just thought that up. <laughs> and that's the thing. She planted some questions. She was making fun of the entire medium itself, standing and it's on its head. It's not the funniest segment. We didn't want to do that. The purpose of that was to show you that from the beginning, she wanted to break new ground. And back then, it was just bringing on the best new celebrity. It was all about which celebrities you could snag. And she said, no, my crew's going to become the celebrity. Carol Burnett's show did hundreds of hilarious sketches over the years. In this clip, Carol's character is in bed with her husband, who is played by Tim Conway, when they get a late-night wrong number. Hello? Who was it? I don't know. Didn't say anything, just hung up. Why'd they hang up? I had the wrong number. Why would someone call a wrong number at this time of night? <laughs> Calling the wrong number any time of night. Why would they pick this number? I don't think they picked this number, probably just dialed, got the wrong number. Is it a signal? <laughs> What a signal. Your friend that called. He's not my friend. He's not? No. 
But you said they didn't say anything. They didn't. Then how do you know it's a he? <laughs> I don't. But you just said, he's not my friend. Well, uh, it's just a figure of speech when you say that. See, I, I, well, what I should have said was, whoever it was didn't say anything. Then why didn't you say that? <laughs> I don't know. I wish I would have. <laughs> By the way, if you've ever dated or known or have a family member who's a paranoid, that is what it sounds like. And Burnett would play all these different characters oh, yeah. and slip in and out of them. That sketch went on for another seven minutes. It oh. just kept going and oh. going. <laughs> What great actors. What great actors. In November 1976, the series' 10th year, The Carol Burnett Show presented its ultimate classic sketch, Went with the Wind, a takeoff on the 1939 film Gone with the Wind, which had aired for the first time that month on NBC the week before. Carol reflects on how it all came together and nearly tore her apart physically. Gone with the Wind was going to be shown in its entirety. So I went to the writers, and I said, you know... Uh, we should do a takeoff on that and say, if for those of you who can't sit for four hours and watch Gone with the Wind, here is here's our first. Remember me, Miss Starlet? Oh, Billy Joe, my goodness, I thought she jumped off the Tallahatchie Bridge. And so, two of our young writers, he had done his thesis in college on Gone with the Wind. So he knew every scene. So they put together this 20 minutes of, I think, brilliant writing. When Harvey says, I love that dress, his gown is gorgeous, and I say, I saw it in the window, and I just couldn't resist it. It was a brilliant line. That, that, that gown is gorgeous. <laughs> Thank you. I saw it in the window, and I just couldn't resist it. Where you? I really fell down those stairs nine times that day because we did because I I fall down three times in the sketch but we did a rehearsal in the morning a dress rehearsal in front of an audience in the afternoon and then the air show so that's nine times I tumble down those stairs and that's the thing and again we got back to the meticulous nature of Lucille Ball trust me this was one hard-working person too there's a tremendous piece on PBS on on Carol Burnett and the work ethos of her and her crew. And they didn't wing it. They, they ultimately did live performance, but boy, did they practice. Here's another clip from the Burnett show where they tackle the subject of political correctness within television production. One of the most difficult things about doing a weekly television show is making sure that you don't offend anybody. And that's really kind of hard because there's so many di- different people from different walks of life and various ethnic groups watching the show that, that we really have to be very careful. So what we try to do is censor ourselves ahead of time before we go on the air so that we won't accidentally say anything that could possibly offend somebody. And, you know, still, sometimes it doesn't work. But let me show you what I mean. You all know Vicki Lawrence? and I are going to show you how we rehearse the sketch. Like, we're going we're gonna to rehearse the sketch now for next week's show. Okay. Don't go away. Come in. Good morning, Mrs. Goldenbaum. Uh, hold it, Carol. Yeah? Uh, that name is a little Jewish. Oh, uh, that voice is our director, Dave Powers. Yeah, Dave? 
Uh, could we change it to Smith just to be safe? Okay, the, the change. Golden Bond to Smith. Okay, you got All right. Come in. Uh, good morning, Mrs. Smith. How's Mr. Golden Bond? <laughs> <laughs> Here, let's just drop. Yeah, I'm ahead of you. Right, got it. Okay, Dave. Right, darling. Good morning, Mrs. Smith. Hello, Mrs. Vitelli. Excuse me. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, this is Carmine D'Alessandro, our prop man. Yes, Carmine. Well, I was just wondering why you mentioned Vitelli. I have a good friend, Vitelli, who's just had to go to the hospital for an operation. Oh, I just didn't think that. Well, isn't that a coincidence? Same name. It sure is. Okay, Carmine, we'll change the name. We didn't mean to offend. Thank you, Miss Burnett. Okay, call me Carol. Carol. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah, Dave. Uh, make it Jones. Vitelli will make it Jones. Okay. Dave, why Jones? And if you're going to use Jones, why use a white girl? There are a lot of white people, there are a lot of white people named Jones. Oh, uh, ladies. I never heard of any. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is our cameraman, Hans Kaufman. Uh, <laughs> And, you know, groundbreaking then. I'd love to hear her do it today. Oh, my goodness. How much more fun that episode could be. The show also became known for its closing theme song, written by Burnett's husband, with these lyrics. I'm so glad we had this time together, just to have a laugh or sing a song. Seems we just get started, and before you know it, comes the time we have to say so long. From its original broadcast, March 29, 1978, Here are the final minutes of The Carol Burnett Show. Carol thanks the crew, talks about her decision to stop the show, and sings I'm So Glad We Had This Time Together one last time. Like graduation, it's a sad and a happy time. It can't be possible that it was 1967 when Harvey, Vicki, Lyle, and I stepped on this stage for the first time because it does seem as if it were only yesterday. Those cliches really have a habit of uh, punching you in the nose, don't they? Recently, um, a lot of people have been running around and expressing their own opinions as to why I decided to quit at the end of this season. And I think I should be the one to tell you, seeing as how I'm the one who really knows. In our 11 years, we have had four different time slots, and we've had our share of being up there in the ratings and being down there in the ratings. And ratings do not have a thing to do with my decision. If they did, I would have called a halt to the proceedings a long time ago because there have been many, many times when they've been a lot lower than they've been this season. Now, I do think it's classier to leave before you're asked to. And the fact that CBS picked our show up for a 12th year and was quite adamant about it is very flattering to all of us here on the show. However, I am adamant, too, and I, I am so proud of our show, and quite simply, I'm no dummy. Now is the time to put it to bed and to go on to other things, because change is growth. It's hard, because all of us around here truly did become a second family. We've been through marriages and divorces and deaths and births, and I know the love that we have shared can never be measured by time. And so Carol Burnett did what Jerry Seinfeld did, what Johnny Carson did. They quit while they were ahead. And quit 
when they were great and still great. This is Lee Habib. The life of Lucille Ball died this day in history. And the life of Carol Burnett, who was born on this day in history. Two great artists, two amazing women, but most of all, two spectacular entertainers. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. But the time I like the best is any evening. This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our Beginning Again series, hosted by writer Beverly Willette who brings us powerful stories about folks who encountered hardship and have to somehow start over in their lives. And here's Beverly's latest. One morning in 1986, New Yorkers opened their newspapers, including me in my apartment in Brooklyn. We saw the photo of a 24-year-old woman named Marla Hansen staring back at us. Taken at St. Vincent's Hospital with stitches all over her face. In excess of 150 stitches to her face. This beautiful woman, a Missouri native who'd gone to college in Texas and then moved to New York City to begin a modeling career, had been brutally slashed with razors the night before outside a Manhattan restaurant. Marla didn't know the two men who had cut up her face, but she did know the man behind it. I had been living in an apartment that was owned by a makeup artist, and he had maintained his own set of keys and would come in the apartment at will anytime he felt like it. You'd be walking out of the shower naked, and there he would be. You would, you know, come out of your bedroom in the morning, and there he would be. And it was a little unnerving for myself and my three other roommates. So we had a um, dorm meeting. And I was the one elected to um, speak to him about it. And when I, when I confronted him about not coming to our apartment and not, you know, coming in, he reacted very violently. It was scary. So I decided I would move out. And he reacted to that very violently. Um, he owed me my rental deposit back, so I agreed to meet him in person in... Um, a public place. I was scared of him by that point. I had already had a bad feeling. So I thought, okay, if I meet him in a public place, a restaurant that was located at the bottom floor of my building, I'll be okay. So I did that, and I wasn't okay. I walked out of the, um, the restaurant. When it became clear he wasn't going to return my rental deposit, he just, I don't know why he even met me. It was kind of an odd meeting. I walked out and all I had to do was walk out of the building and then turn, a, you know, turn and go into the entrance of the apartment building. It was the same building, just a different door. So I walked out and as I was turning to go into the building, there were two men standing in the shadows. And um, I wasn't going to make it in the building, they were blocking my way. So I turned to walk the other way 
And I thought, oh, we'll walk around the corner to the deli that was there. And I was walk as I walked away, I noticed them step out of the shadows and start to follow me. And the landlord also came out of the restaurant and began to walk with me. And I knew at that moment that I was in some trouble. Trouble would turn out to be an understatement. Even though Marla made the perfectly natural assumption, we all do, that meeting in a public place will keep us safe. I knew there was a police station nearby, so I was trying to make my way there, but I didn't get there. There was a parking lot behind the building, and as I reached the parking lot, they caught up with me and dragged me into the, the parking lot. And while I was trying to defend myself from a, like a rape attack, I didn't realize they were doing something to my face. They were kind of waving their hands. One held me down. The landlord went off to be a lookout and the other one was moving his hands sort of wildly in front of my face. I didn't realize until I looked down at my white t-shirt, which had turned red from all the blood, what had happened. Somebody had seen what was happening, uh, you know, a neighbor that was walking down the street and he started shouting and running toward them. At that point, they ran away and I was able to pull myself away from the situation and run. We hear about the power of love all the time, but fear is an equally powerful force because it's so tied to our instinct for survival. I was curious about how this fight for survival figured into Marla's experience. So I did some research and found that scientists liken the reaction we have to fear to a reflex, and that less than a tenth of a second occurs between what precipitates our fear and the reaction itself. Here's what was running through Marla's mind during the split second after the attack, right before she was able to run away. You do what you need to do to survive. It was almost like I went on autopilot and I knew I was in a survival moment and I got very calm. Interestingly, um, there would be waves of panic though. It was kind of like a wave would come over and I'd panic and then I would stop and breathe and think, okay, you know, I was, I screamed, clearly people heard me. I don't even remember doing it though. It's almost like it sort of just happened, but nobody helped. People, there were all sorts of cars going into the, um, I want to say the Lincoln Tunnel. It's right by the Lincoln Tunnel. And it was a busy night, lots and lots of cars. You know, they rolled their windows up. Nobody helped me. And the moment when I saw people looking at me and not helping, I thought, okay, I have to help myself. Nobody would help. I had to help myself, she said. So that's what Marla did. She made her way back to the restaurant where she told people to call the police and hospital and ask for wet towels. She said her face was bleeding so badly she could put her fingers inside it. That's when she got very lucid, she said. And then the cops arrived to take her to the hospital. As I was getting in the car, there was a lot of stuff in the back of the car, like boxes and things like that. So there was barely any room for me, but I squeezed myself in. And as I was shutting the door, the landlord jumped in the car, almost on my lap, and shut the door and then announced that he was my boyfriend and started barking orders. So that was absolutely terrifying because I didn't know what to say. I thought, oh, he's tried to kill me already. 
and um, I just shut up. I went really silent. And when we come back, more on this story from Beverly Willette, the story of Marla Hansen. This is our Beginning Again series, and what a story it is. This is Our American Stories, more after these messages. Our American Stories, and we're back with Beverly Willett's Beginning Again series. And if you have a Beginning Again story, give us a call at 844-627-8255 and record your story there. Or leave us your information and we can help you record it. Once again, that's 844-627-8255. And now let's return to Beverly's latest feature on Marla Hansen, the New York model whose perverted landlord hired men to brutally slash her face with a razor blade in 1986. And by the way, if you were living in New York or near New York at the time, and I was, those pictures in the New York Post were horrifying. When we left off, Marla escaped her attackers and got into a police car. And then her landlord jumped into their car and pretended to be her boyfriend. Let's hear what happens next. Police had um, caught the attackers, and then the landlord, of course, was in the car with me. They said, we're going to make a stop on the way to the hospital. You're okay, and, you know, just tell us if you recognize anyone. So they stopped, and there were the two guys that cut me were on the ground in handcuffs. So I was able to identify them at that point and, and then get to the hospital. As soon as I got to the hospital, I told them that the guy in the car was not my boyfriend. In fact, he was the guy that did this to me. I didn't even know if they would believe me because I was having trouble believing it myself. But I woke up the next morning from surgery and there was a little um, urinal bottle (laughs) with flowers in it and a note from the police saying that they believed me and that they had, in fact, arrested the makeup artist that orchestrated the attack and that they all three guys were behind bars. And they said, rest assured, justice will be served. But justice would not be served for several years, if it ever was. Although that's generally what we tend to believe in America, We're brought up to believe that justice will also be swift. But that didn't happen for Marla either. Of course we need to hold on to hope, but justice doesn't always work the way we think it will. Marla figured that out fairly quickly. But first, she underwent surgery on her face, her calling card for her modeling career, 
and the way she earned her living. I woke up the next morning and, you know, you, it's just your mind can't get itself around that sort of thing. And I kept thinking, I've dreamt this. And I woke up thinking I would be back in my apartment and it was just this bad dream. But woke up and there I was in the hospital um, with a nurse jabbing a needle in my behind. <laughs> and I said, okay, this is real. I'm really here. And um, then the surgeon came in a few minutes later and he was adorable he uh, was standing next to me and he seemed very nervous but he had this uh, mirror at his you know at his side holding on to it and one side was a magnifying glass and the other was a regular one and i was fixated on the mirror because i wanted to look at myself and in fact the night before before i had surgery um, when i was in the er i wanted to see myself so i told the nurse i had to go to the loo and jumped up and ran down the hall with my IV attached and she chased after me and lunged into the bathroom and said no you, you I know what you're doing you're not going to the bathroom you're trying to look at your face and I'm not gonna let you do that so I never saw myself uh -huh. I thought based on everyone's reactions that it must be pretty bad but I was still alive and then that's all you think about in a moment like that I'm alive and you know I survived this because during the attack, I didn't think I would. In fact, I was sure I was going to die and I was perfectly fine with it. This sort of peace comes over you. And I found myself with a new perspective about, I don't know, 100 feet above my body looking down. And it was just this moment of absolute clarity I've never had before and never had since. But I had disembodied, I guess, and was looking down at the situation, kind of directing myself. But yet there I was up there having my big life review. You know, it's like the cliche you always hear about, where all your life passes before your mind's eye, and that's exactly what it was. Turns out these out-of-body occurrences are absolutely real. Both trauma and near-death experiences can bring them on. I was surprised to learn that nearly one in 10 people will have at least one such episode during their lifetime and sometimes more. During Marla's experience, she debated with herself whether she was prepared to die or instead wanted to go on living. Have I really learned everything I can learn as Marla? And the answer was no, I think I can learn a little more. So I said out loud to myself, I want to learn more as Marla. I want to stay here as Marla. And I felt like, I really felt like that um, it was a conscious decision to stay. And if I had chosen, I could have left. It was really wild, and it it was interesting because it really made me, in the aftermath, question everything I questioned about life and myself. Because if my consciousness was up there, who was down there? You know, I was both places. It was very weird and trippy. And um, I think therapists have a name for that, which is disassociation. But to me, it felt like something more spiritual than that. When she first woke up from surgery, though, Marla was off balance and not entirely sure whether she was dead or alive. When I first awoke from surgery, I opened my eyes and there was this face over me <laughs> with blonde hair and there was a light right above his head so it was like shining all around him. And then this big booming voice said, hello Marla. And I thought to myself for a second, I did not survive. And then he said, I'm Chuck Scarborough from Channel 4 News. <laughs> and 
It was hilarious. So that kind of broke the ice and, you know, it was funny. Thank God for that moment of levity, because sometimes that's exactly what we need to keep going. Marla would still have to look at herself in the mirror, however, and see for herself what so many of us saw when we opened our newspapers back in 1986. All 150 stitches that crisscrossed her face. And getting a look was practically all she could think about when the surgeon checked on her. He was talking to me about what he had done, and all I could think, all I could fixate on was that mirror hanging at his side. So finally he noticed, and he's like, oh, you want to see yourself? And I said, yes. So he gave me the mirror, but the, the uh, magnifying glass side, I picked it up and I looked at it and all I saw was this big explosion of stitches. And when I did that, I noticed that every stitch was perfectly formed, exactly the same distance apart, like a beautiful piece of artwork. So I was like, looking at that and I said, wow, you know, you did a really beautiful job. That's so nice. Thank you so much. And I think he almost started to cry, the surgeon. <laughs> He's like, are you in shock? I've never had anybody thank me after I like, stitched their face up like that. And I was like, well, now I was noticing that all the stitches, how perfect they are. You know, you did like almost like an artwork. And he said, in fact, he was an artist. He was a sculptor and a painter, as well as a plastic surgeon. So it was the whole experience from start to finish was just really wild. Um, but I think at that point, I was just so appreciative that I was alive. And I had such a great surgeon that you did such a beautiful job on my face. In an unlucky situation, I was pretty lucky in the aftermath, so that's what I focused on. If I had to pick one moment from my talk with Marla, when I understood what a resilient and incredible woman she is, I think it would be this moment of gratitude. In the midst of something so horrible, most of us probably can't grasp it. If you don't remember this tragedy, or weren't alive then, Google that photograph from her hospital bed and you'll see what I mean. Whatever Marla's face looked like at that moment, I think there's no doubt about the condition of her heart. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story by Beverly Willett, beginning again is the series and the subject Marla Hansen, and my goodness, it's just, it's remarkable what Americans do, what people do at their most difficult times. What a heart this lady has, and there's a heck of a lot more of her story to follow. How does she overcome this? What happens next? When we come back, more on Marla Hansen's story here on Our American Stories. And as always, you can go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all that we do. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org.
This is Our American Stories, and we're listening to the latest story in Beverly Willett's Beginning Again series. Stories of folks figuring out how to move forward after a tremendous shock in their lives. And we've been hearing Marla Hansen's stories, and my oh my, what a shock in her life. By now, Marla's attackers have been caught. She's recovering in the hospital, but a whole new series of challenges await her. Marla's attack quickly became national news, and the press hounded her. Before she'd even had time to physically recover, Marla was thrown into the middle of the criminal justice system and the media circus. It was a big press kind of um, extravagance. I guess it was a slow news day or something. But the press got hold of the story, and there wasn't a TV in my room in the hospital, thank God, because I had no idea what was brewing until the phone started ringing. A year before the trial started, in between that time there were the investigations, which are, if you've never been through anything like that, pretty eye-opening and traumatic, because you, you have this understanding that the justice system is there for you, but no, it's not, because you don't matter. All you are is a piece of information. The justice system is there for the accused. I thought the prosecutor was my attorney, but no, that's not it either. You don't have an attorney. You don't have the right to have an attorney because they don't feel like you need one, even though everything about your life is put into question. Um, It really tears at your sanity. So if I thought my life was going to be easy when I decided to stay, I was in for a really rude awakening. And um, I was kind of floating on this cloud of appreciation for a while, but that came crashing down when they called me in front of the grand jury. And took me straight from the hospital. I had no clothes. Um, I didn't have any underwear. Somebody gave me some clothes that didn't even fit right. Um, and I didn't have underwear on. I had none. And I didn't have any way to get any. And they hadn't cleaned my face. I hadn't really even looked at myself. So I wasn't supposed to be talking and moving my face. And yet they made me come and testify. The doctor was beside himself. But, you know, what can you do? As a former attorney, I can tell you there's not much you can do once you're caught up in the justice system. Things have improved since Marla's experience, but at the time, reform was still in its infancy. Victims' rights advocate Steve Twist agrees with Marla's observation. Too often, victims were treated more like evidence than suffering human beings. Our Constitution's Sixth Amendment guarantees criminal defendants the right to a speedy trial. But there's no similar guarantee of fair treatment for victims. Many people are blindsided when they've done absolutely nothing wrong. As is often said, the process is the punishment. And that's what happened to Marla, too. The defense attorneys called her character into question, and she feel like she was the one being put on trial instead of her attackers. Cast in the role of racist vixen, I had to go testify, and I hadn't had time to gather my thoughts. I hadn't had time to really think through everything. And they're saying, oh, don't worry, just tell us what happened. But what they don't say is you're stuck to every single word you say and exactly the way you say it. And if you vary from that, you remember something else or you know, something else comes to mind, then that calls your credibility into question. So nobody says that to you, and I didn't have anyone protecting my rights or myself. 
I just sort of went in there thinking, oh, well, I'm telling the truth, so this is what it's going to be. But in comes Reverend Sharpton and Alton Maddox and the whole crew because two of the guys that cut me were black. The landlord was white. And I didn't, I was completely blindsided by that because here they came and said that I was just some white, and this is their words, bitch from Texas, who saw the first two black guys on the street and pointed my finger at them. That side swiped me, it came from nowhere. I wasn't expecting it, I didn't know what to say to that. So all of a sudden I was a liar, I was a prostitute who was out there, you know, doing God knows what on a you know, midnight on a street corner. Because they had shoved me to the ground, so my face was basically belt level to the guys when they were cutting me. And so what did that look like? You know, so they started saying things like that, and then I put me on the defensive, so all then I could do is defend myself. But then you're not allowed to do that either because you're not, there was a gag order. I wasn't allowed to talk to the press. We hear a lot about victim blaming now, but not so much back then. What happened to Marla was classic. You take a victim and bully and humiliate them at a time when they're at their weakest and most vulnerable and hope a jury will believe that they're partially or fully responsible for what happened to them. And if you object, defense attorneys are of course going to claim that they're just trying to protect their own client's interests. There's a war going on between the prosecution and the defense and victims are essentially caught in the middle. And even though it's natural for a victim to assume they're on the side of the prosecution and that the government is looking out for them, in reality, if you're a prosecutor, you don't want to lose your case. So the police often grill the victim too to make sure that this piece of evidence won't crack under pressure. They put you in this room with a hard plastic chair and there's a chair across from you and they get up and leave the room and you sit there for 20 minutes by yourself looking around and it's not a pretty room either. They come back with a file and they look at the file, then they look up at you, then they look at the file, they look up at you, they look at the file, they look at you, they look at you, they look at you, then they put the file down, they look at you some more and they say, and then you're nervous by that time because you're thinking, what are they looking at? Then they start to ask you questions. Is there anything you want to tell us? And you're like, um, no, are you sure about that? So then you really start getting nervous because then you're seeing yourself through their eyes and you're thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, and you start to feel like you've done something. And um, they were questioning me about everything, every man in my life, what was I doing out that night, and what skeletons did I have in the closet. And um, it was terrifying, absolutely terrifying. And I kept thinking, what have I done? You know, I'm in trouble here. And um, finally, when they finished, they said, oh, well, we have to do that to make sure that you don't have any skeletons in your closet. What does it have to do with anything? It has nothing to do with that night. But all of a sudden, I'm on the defensive again, you know, not only in front of the press and in front of, you know, Reverend Sharpton and Ultimatics, but now the police are questioning my credibility. And they kept saying, what really happened that night? And he said, I've told you. No, Marla, really think you're leaving something out and you're like no not that I can think of um, so immediately I realized okay this isn't going to be you know this isn't me you know showing up and telling the truth and thinking everything's going to be okay because right away I realized it's not this is something much bigger than me 
Eventually there would be two trials, one of Marla's landlord and the other trial of the men who had physically attacked her. Marla was required to testify in both. All three men were convicted and sent to jail for the maximum term of 5 to 15 years. Before the sentencing, Marla told reporters she felt humiliated by what she had to undergo. But Marla's poor treatment didn't end there. The judge humiliated her too, intimating she was a flirt and telling Marla in open court that he was incensed at her for talking to reporters, causing Marla to break down in tears. He later apologized after the mayor of New York City told the press he was outraged by the judge's behavior. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, Marla Hansen's story, and of course Beverly Willette is doing the reporting for Beginning Again series. One more segment. We'll find out what happened to Marla Hansen after justice was served and the healing, well, the healing begins. This is Our American Stories, and we're now coming to the conclusion of Marla Hansen's Beginning Again story, a real-life drama of a young model moving to the big city, meeting a degenerate landlord, getting attacked with razor blades for refusing his advances, and being forced to battle the media and the courts as she tried to physically and spiritually heal. Now let's hear more from Beverly Willette but how all of this trauma affected Marla. With the thugs now in jail, you might think this was finally the moment of Marla's vindication. She told me, however, that her treatment by the justice system was worse by a thousandfold than the razors that had slashed her face because the pounding she'd taken had caused deep, invisible wounds to her psyche. Looking back on the experience, she said it was the little moments of kindness from others that got her through. The kindness of her surgeon, of a philanthropist named Milton Petrie, known for helping disaster victims, who gave Marla a small trust fund to keep her going financially. But after the trials were over, Marla was left alone to fend for herself. People told her to get over it and move on with her life already. But it's not that simple for any victim, let alone a victim of a horrific crime like Marla's. Marla said she slept a lot at first. She was depressed. 
Everywhere she went, people knew her because her face continued to be plastered across the tabloids. People magazine did an expose, and Marla became known nationally. A movie was made about her experience called The Marla Hansen Story. She received a lot of notoriety, she said, but it wasn't for her career, but as a victim. Her modeling career was over, and victim was a dirty word in our culture, as it often still is today, because it makes people uncomfortable. Eventually, Marla got help from a therapist. And the first thing he had her work on was just getting out of bed in the morning. Later on, she went back to college and got a degree in filmmaking. Through all this, Marla was still angry inside, though. So she began speaking out about what had happened to her. She appeared on Phil Donahue and Larry King Live and other national television shows. She educated therapists, police, the state and local justice departments, and hospitals. And she spoke before women's groups and shared the victim's point of view. She testified before various state legislatures on behalf of rape shield laws that would prohibit introduction of evidence relating to the past sexual conduct of victims. The intention of these laws, many of which were passed, was to safeguard victims from embarrassing questions about their private sex lives and to encourage them to report crimes. In 1994, Congress enacted the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act, which extended rape shield protections to victims who sued for restitution in civil court proceedings. The Violence Against Women Act was included in the passage of this law and provided funds for investigation and prosecution of violent crimes against women and men, as well as provision for restitution by convicts and the rights for victims to seek civil redress. At the request of former Vice President Joe Biden, Marla testified in hearings before Congress on behalf of the act. She told the U.S. Senate that the stigma of victimization had harmed her more than the attack. Although the word victim implied innocence, she testified that in practice it implied guilt on the part of the victim. She told how she'd been called out for wearing a miniskirt how she'd been castigated for being in a bar at midnight, and even accused of staging the attack just to make money. Today, all states have some form of protection for crime victims, although the level of protection varies. 33 states have adopted amendments to their constitutions, guaranteeing rights to victims. New York, however, isn't one of them. Although New York has victims assistance programs, the website of the New York DA's office points out that criminal cases are prosecuted on behalf of the people and that, quote, victims, therefore, do not need their own attorney. As a crime victim, you are a witness in the prosecution of your case, end quote. In other words, perhaps a piece of evidence. Reform advocates like Steve Twist continue to argue we need an amendment to the U.S. Constitution so that the law guarantees crime victims the same level of protection as those in our society who break it. 
1982, President Ronald Reagan appointed a task force on victims of crime, which recommended that the Sixth Amendment to the Constitution guarantee a victim's right to be heard. A decade and a half later, President Clinton reaffirmed his support for a like amendment. To date, however, there's been no passage of a constitutional amendment granting victims the same equal protection as perpetrators. At some point during her advocacy work, Marla began having delayed reactions to her experiences and suffered from PTSD. So she had to put her victim's advocacy work on hold. But eventually she mustered the courage to speak out again and help educate the public this time about PTSD. I'm happy to say that Marla also produced a few films, got married, and had a daughter. And although she's no longer on the speaking circuit, in the long run, I think her empathy for others and advocacy work helped her more than anything else to begin again. Last year, I read about another woman in Manhattan whose face had been slashed by an attacker and how Marla spoke with this most recent victim, as she does with others. I asked her what advice she gives, and she told me that it's the same advice someone once gave her to help her through her own ordeal. I'll tell you, the, the thing that somebody told me that changed my life, it was a big light bulb, and no one had said that to me, was um, I kept looking for the old Marla. I kept trying to get myself back because I couldn't get back to the place I had been. And finally somebody said to me, why are you trying to do that? The old Marla is not there anymore. It's like the Twin Towers, the World Trade Center. It's in rubble on the ground. You don't exist anymore. The Marla you knew doesn't exist. But the beauty in that, and when you recognize that, like that person is gone forever, and you just have to mourn the It's like a death. You mourn the loss of who you were. But the great news is you have the power to rebuild whatever you want and that you're in control of that because I never felt in control. And she handed me back control of my life with that and, you know, gave me the tools to start to rebuild. And that, that was the best advice anybody had given me. After talking with this amazing woman, however, I think that new, beautiful, brave, inspiring Marla Hansen was always right there inside that old one. This is Our American Stories, and what a great, great story from Beverly Willette. Again, part of her Beginning Again series. And Marla Hansen's story, an important one, on the victim's rights front. I kept looking for the old Marla, and Marla's not here anymore, a friend told her. The Marla you know doesn't exist. And so she mourned the loss. And she moved forward and built the new Marla. And for victims, countless victims everywhere in this country, it's the same. I worked for a short time in a prosecutor's office. And it just horrified me how some of the prosecutors, and not all of them, there were some really decent and good prosecutors, but the political prosecutors, the ones looking to be governor, run for office, oh my goodness, the only thing they cared about was their record. They cared about clearing the case right, making sure it was buttoned up so it couldn't be on the, on the appellate front, 
a problem for them. And I saw that firsthand, and I can only imagine what that might be like in a larger system like the New York Police Department, the NYPD, a great department, by the way, and great prosecutors. But you know what? The system, the system just, it isn't designed for the victim, as you heard. And so thanks to all the folks who are doing great victims' rights works. Thank you, Marla. And the next time I'm in New York, I'm going to look you up. We owe you a dinner. We owe you so much more for helping us and helping folks who are victims hear this story. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib. Check out all of our work, all the work that we do on OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Marla Hansen's story. A remarkable, remarkable beginning again story by Beverly Willett.